Welcome to Buildings and Beyond. The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment. By focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health. I'm Rob Aldrich. And I'm Kelly Westby. This week, I'm excited to share our episode with Catherine Wright. We talk extensively in this episode about a practical framework for integrating buildings and equity that was released a couple of months ago. She outlines for us why building professionals need to focus on equity. As we go into this transition and we're trying to make rapid change in the built environment in a short period of time, like we have an imperative um, to think about equity as we do our work. Um, other, otherwise, like the scars of history are still in our buildings. And in order for us to actually see change, we have to recognize that history and we have to think about how we move past it. I asked Catherine where her personal interest in equity and buildings stems from. My interest in this actually started from a pretty young age. So I I grew up in Atlanta in a primarily African-American community. Um, My parents were really dedicated to recycling. They packaged up all the recycling. We drove it every weekend and we recycled everything in all the bins. What I discovered when we moved from the predominantly African-American part of the county to the middle of the county where it was mixed race was that everyone was getting a recycling bin dropped off at their house standard. Uh, So I already was starting to notice inequities in place as it related to the environmental movement from a very early age. And so um, once I began sort of learning more and like getting more advanced in my studies, um, I learned about redlining, which was a practice um, uh, by the government of essentially rating different neighborhoods um, for their suitability for lending. And, and race was a factor in re- resulting in a less desirable neighborhood. What I also found out was that there was a separate set of underwriting standards for the Federal Housing Authority, which for a long time also explicitly incorporated race, Um, but it also grouped race and environmental hazards together in the same way as undesirable. And they also placed a higher value on communities that were located near green space. Um, So... The more I sort of learned and the more that I began working with cities and thinking about climate action policies and what would be most impactful in neighborhoods, I would start seeing seeing history play out in the mapping. Where is the urban heat island effect still um, the worst in some of these historically redlined neighborhoods, which, part- which were redlined that way? because of race, um, because of environmental factors. And they probably didn't have green space because green space was considered desirable. They would have been rated higher. So um, unfortunately, um, in a lot of cities across the U.S., if you overload those redlining maps with urban heat island maps, with energy burden maps, it's it's the same. And so if we have our existing buildings, which are going to be with us for a long time. Like we have to think about equity in, in the way that we do our building work. 
Catherine's career has been focused on centering the sustainability movement in equity. She led the Sustainable Community and Organizations Practice Team at CADMIS, which focused on consulting engagements at the intersection of climate mitigation, resilience, and social equity. Alongside this, she co-founded MySomebody, a software platform that enables its users to buy and sell solar PV net metering credits. She currently works at the Urban Sustainability Directors Network as its program director for building energy, and she serves on the board of directors at the New Buildings Institute. To start out, I asked her to explain about what USDN does. So we are the Urban Sustainability Directors Network. That's where I work. We say USDN for short. I know that is a mouthful. Um, And USDN started back in 2008 as a peer learning network for sustainability practitioners. At at the time, um, there were leading jurisdictions around the U.S. and Canada. They were all seeking to do more on climate and energy action. Um, But they also felt like they were sort of sometimes working in silos by themselves and really wanted a, a method to exchange best practices and learning with others. So They formed, um, at the time, the Urban Sustainability Directors Network. It was just an organization. It wasn't a formal nonprofit at the time, um, but it it got started that way. And over time, more local sustainability practitioners heard about the network, and it grew in size over time. So right now, we serve 250, roughly, um, cities and counties across the U.S. and Canada. What ties them all together is they've all made some sort of high-ambition climate um, or energy commitment. Um, So we still provide that forum for peer exchange between sustainability practitioners. We do that in a couple of ways every year. Um, We stand up a set of learning groups for people who are really interested in learning new topics. We also have action groups where a lot of cities are contemplating passing a policy or pursuing the same type of program at the same time. So those are a little bit more action oriented. Then we also have an innovation facility. So we have um, some grants that we do for cities that have innovative ideas to sort of help them uh, get those ideas off the ground. And then sometimes we have special projects where um, cities are able to work um, in depth with one another in smaller groups um, all around a shared challenge or idea. Um, So that's a little bit about USDN. Um, It's exciting. We're like I said, I said, we're just over a decade old, uh, starting in 2008 and um, still trying to drive impact and change in sustainability and climate. Yeah, that's excellent. I love that sort of um, trifecta that you outlined of um, having sharing resources, develop co-development, or or you know bouncing ideas off of each other as you're developing new policies, and then also providing some areas of funding. Maybe I paraphrased that wrong, but um, what are some of the um, exciting innovations that you have uh, funded through the program? Um, there, there's been, it kind of runs the gamut, honestly, in terms of the type of work that's occurred at USDN. Um, a recent one that I, I like to mention is we funded a group of members that were in the PJM territory. So that's one of the um, electrical grid territories. It's a particular independent system operator. And um, some of the cities and counties in that region were noticing that there were a lot of things that they'd like to change in order to see their high ambition climate commitments move forward. And some of those changes were 
enabled at the ISO level in terms of thinking about what grid flexibility could look like in the built environment, um, in terms of thinking about penetration of renewables or like the role of demand side management um, in that particular region of the country, the ISO, PJM, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, um, has quite a bit of, of control over that. And so uh, we funded sort of an initial convening amongst those cities to think about what could it look like if we engaged at that level. Um, and now the PJM coalition, um, you can look them up, they're, they're formal. They, they've continued meeting and have actually um, weighed in on certain dockets um, at the PJM level and really um, have pushed forward um, a form of engagement that's new for local governments. Um, it's actually not that common for local governments to engage at the um, ISO level, even though they're obviously very affected by those policies. Um, so that's an example of the type of leading edge work that we like to encourage. So as the programs director for building energy at USDN, how much does equity play a part in your work? Um, so just for context, as a program director at USDN, I oversee all of our learning groups and strategic partnerships and federal engagement as well as it relates to the built environment. Um, and so because USDN um, has recently made a set of equity principles and commitments. And we also have a set of high impact practices. And so those are practices that we believe advance climate mitigation, resilience, and equity. And those are sort of the core tenets of um, our work. And equity is central in each and every one of those high impact practices. So since I've joined USDN, um, it's really impacted how we're thinking about the types of learning groups that we run in the network. So for example, we're doing a lot of work on rental housing energy efficiency right now, um, as well as zoning, um, which has historically not been a very inc inclusionary practice, but has the potential to be. Um, and mm -hmm. so we're really trying to sort of bring that thread throughout all of our work. Um, and it, it's not just in our buildings work now, it's also how the same lens that we're trying to build bring to our work in transportation and resilience um, and so on. Um, USDN has evolved. That's certainly not how it was when it started, but it is, it is how we are thinking about our work now. That's great. That's awesome. And was equity always central to part of USDN's vision or did the role kind of evolve over time? Equity has evolved um, within the USDN network over time. Um, so, and much like the climate uh, planning movement and the building movement has evolved over time too. So when USDN first started back in 2008, um, it was still very focused on greenhouse gas emissions and mitigation. Over time, there was more of a focus on resilience and adaptation added as the field evolved as well. And USDN was sort of pushed by members who were noticing that um, there was a lot of uh, change that they wanted to see in how they were pursuing climate action just based on um, community priorities and what they were seeing locally. And so that led to USDN working with our members um, as well as um, other equity experts in the field to develop a set of equity principles and commitments that we felt like reflected the way that we wanted to pursue climate planning work. Um, and the first tenet um, and principle that we have is sort of recognizing that climate change, environmental justice, and inequity are all tied together. They're all coming out of systems of extraction 
production and exploitation of natural and human resources. And in order to, in our belief, have effective climate impact, you have to really think about those issues together. Um, and so when we made those equity principles and commitments, um, it impacted how we were thinking about all of our programming across the network. Um, so it's been a growth and evolution over time. USDN, prior to having the equity principles and commitment, did have a number of public documents that we released about how we were thinking about and defining equity, but those principles and commitments really um, put pen to paper and have also really shaped how our programming has evolved since then. Okay, interesting. And then the the equity building and buildings report, the practical framework um, that you had been working on that was just released recently, um, did that come out of, you know, this these principles across the whole network? Um, or was it a request again from your constituents or uh, participants? So the the equity and buildings framework um, is, is tied in with the equity and principles commitment, certainly, um, but it actually arose out of a series of conversations um, that we I had with the wider field. Um, so what we what I had begun to notice and then sort of talked about with or other organizations such as the NAACP, um, NRDC, um, and Emerald Cities Collaborative was there was a lot of guidance that was coming out recently, um, really focused on how to have a very meaningful community engagement process. Like how do you move past the typical government public comment period where no one really feels heard into something that's more transformative and shifts power to community. We felt like there was quite a bit of good information that was being published on the topic. We also thought that there was quite a lot of technical guidance on specific building programs and policies. So guidance on how to think about benchmarking, how to think about a building performance standard. Um, but what we felt like there wasn't really something that was making that bridge for people who wanted to think about the built environment and building program policies in a more holistic way, not necessarily moving towards thinking about a particular policy prescription, but really trying to take a step back and understand what local needs were. We felt like there was a gap in the literature for practitioners um, both at the local government level, which is like primarily where we targeted it, but we also were starting to hear like the same questions from some of the community-based organizations that are doing similar work, but aren't local governments. And so that's where that idea was hatched to do the equity and building framework to really try to help people um, who were trying to think about revamping their building programs or trying to stand up one for the first time. Like how do you start um, trying to think about buildings from more of a people-oriented approach and more of a community-centered approach. Um, so that that was the inspiration. It sort of conveniently tied back very well with the equity principles and commitments and also um, the way that USDN has started thinking about what high impact means. As I mentioned, like a lot of the climate field, so we started really with that focus on greenhouse gas mitigation. But now, Anything we try to do in the network, we would like to see it advance mitigation, resilience, and equity at the same time. Um, and so we also thought that the equity and buildings framework was a helpful way of helping people think about their work from this new frame. That's excellent. And one of the points in the um, framework report is obviously ha making equity co-equal to the other priorities within um with any, within any policy. So it's great to see that your policy within the network uh, is to make sure that they are uh, co-equal with resilience and, and efficiency as well. 
within this uh, document, what do you think are the two to five, um, say three things that are, uh, that policymakers, you really want them to take away from this report? Obviously, hopefully read the whole thing, but... Yeah, if you if you can't read the whole thing, we did at the top, there's this set of principles of practice. There's only 12 and it's only two pages. Um, and <laughs> that is, I would say, probably a decade's worth of work from many different organizations across the country distilled down into two pages of what they thought made their work successful. Um, so just for context, we worked on this document um, with a series of community-based organizations, nonprofits, and leading cities from across the U.S. and Canada. And those principles of practice were what they felt were central to the success of their work um, and for moving the field forward. Um, so if I were just going to pick two of the 12 <laughs> um, or a few things for you uh, just to think about is the one thing that we are really trying to think about is buildings are built by people and they're for people. So a lot of times, um, and I'm, I'm guilty of this as well, I have a background in industrial ecology. So there's sometimes where we're really focused on technical solutions or the latest policy innovation that someone has. But if we take a step back, this is really about the people who occupy the buildings, the people who are sharing space with buildings, uh, the people whose neighborhoods these buildings are in. And because of that, we really have to think about that people-centered approach and how um, communities are experiencing the built environment and really try to put that front and center. And so that's why we have taken so much time in the document to really talk about incorporating community voices and making sure that um, residents and stakeholders actually have power and a say in the process of thinking about what the future of the built environment looks like. Um, it's one thing to come to a community group with to ask for feedback on a policy that's mostly baked or like this planning idea that has sort of hatched from within um, a local government. It's an entirely different thing to approach and have a conversation and really build a relationship over time that sort of leads you to understanding like what some of the pressing needs, which in some cases might have gone on for decades are in the built environment that people are experiencing and what they think could um, help build those solutions. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I, as you were talking, it made me think of reading some of the policy language to to participate in the public comment period that you sort of alluded to. And, it, you know, I have to read these documents that I am aware of what the intention is 10 to 13 to 50 times <laughs> before I understand what they really mean and what the implications are for different communities. And so the idea that, um, you know, people who's full-time job is not to read and understand the language of um, this policy, but it, are impacted by it, you know, that they should come in at that stage and review something that's already baked and already um, sort of written in legal language. I think it uh, is no wonder that those the that comments can't get incorporated in that time and that the communities aren't really um, bought into the legislation when they're brought in at that time. And what is the most common thing you see cities getting uh, tripped up on in this framework? I think a, a common question that um, came up. So just for context, in addition to the framework, we also use this as the basis for a workshop series with cities. 
either advancing building policies in some way or had an existing program and sort of realizing that there were some gaps. So we had worked with about 30 cities um, using that workshop format. And a common question was buildings are not top of mind necessarily for everyone. And so how do you sort of begin a conversation like from scratch uh, with community members about something that on its face seems very technical? Um, so there was sort of this question about where do I start? Um, and one thing that we have discovered through the network over time is that a lot of these issues actually are very salient um, for community members and there are um, housing organizations and others um, that are not necessarily tagged with sustainability or energy um, that have been working on these issues for some time. Um, but there were sort of differences in, lang in language um, that had to be broached. So for example, we think a lot about occupant comfort and what that means in terms of ventilation requirements. Um, and community members are going to simply say things like, like my building is, is leaky and I'm often uncomfortable and I am often trying to balance uh, what, how much I can heat my building versus uh, what I can actually afford to pay in a given month in a heating bill. And so uh, it sometimes really requires time, first of all, which sometimes isn't always necessarily built into um, some of the RFP processes, it's like there's a really tight window for doing community engagement, but to do it well, like you can sort of get to some of the core issues and probably even work with communities to get to an idea about a policy prescription that could really create some improvements in their lives. But you really have to be willing to start um, from, from the beginning and have a dialogue and really listen um, and not just sort of go back to the comfort zone of some of these this technical jargon that we're all familiar with. Um, because people are thinking about it, they're just not necessarily talking about it in the same way. Um, or no one's really asked them questions directly in the right way about their experience who actually had the policymaking ability to make a change. One of the things that comes up in this document that I thought was uh, really interesting and uh, I hadn't thought about before was when you're going to have that community engagement to do some work be beforehand to say, you know, I as a policymaker or maybe I in the sustainability department of the uh, of a city have certain roles and responsibilities and certain authority myself to make change. And and maybe I don't have complete authority to make change. And so being honest and upfront with the community members as you're having those discussions so you don't get into the um, that uh, place where they're making recommendations or telling you something and you, you can't actually act on that or, or what, what will come of those discussions. You know, I, I, I definitely think that, that that is key. So part of the learnings from the report were informed directly by all of the people I mentioned we work with. And then we, USDN, also led a project for three years where cities and community-based organizations work together on trying to work on equity in buildings at the same time. And so a lot of what they learned um, from working together and going to community, that, that transparency was really important, um, especially because a lot of these, a lot of community members have been part of public participation processes before where they didn't really feel like 
they were listened to or weren't really sure where the output of that process was going. I mean, so providing that transparency and being uh, being upfront with people was really important um, to building relationships and also trying to move forward. Yeah, that's excellent. And I love your focus too on the the people-centered discussions around buildings. I think we've talked about human-centered design in different ways on this podcast before from a health healthy buildings lens from a um, accessibility lens and uh, you know and I think you're you've mentioned it kind of in terms of the health of the people and the comfort of the people within them but also in terms of how do the policies serve the community so how are you connecting the benefits to the people uh, who have been disadvantaged in the in the past Um, and one thing that we had talked about um, when we were uh, talking before this was about um, funding that and this mentions very explicitly this is um, an endeavor that needs to be adequately funded there needs to be resources allocated both to people in the policy level to focus on these things but also to the communities so I'm curious if you want to describe some of the ways in which um, communities have done that or the, the sort of importance of that element of the principles. Yeah, so from our perspective, there's a huge value in the lived experience of of people within within a neighborhood or within a community. Um, and oftentimes, the people that you need most are capacity constrained. They could be very resource constrained organizations, these organizations um, that really are doing a lot of this grassroots level work. Um, oftentimes, like, environment and sustainability, while important to them, may not be the central part of their mission. Um, and so it's really important um, to, when you value those perspective to ensure that they are adequately compensated for their time. Like we certainly wouldn't expect a technical consultant who's going to do a building audit to do that and not be compensated. It's, it's very similar. Um, so what we've seen in some of our, in some of our, member cities as as some have created stipends or payment structures for individuals from the community to join policy processes early on. Um, There's a process ongoing right now in San Jose where they're actually designating community co-creation consultants. That's, That's their title. And they're working directly with cities and technical advisors on trying to come up with Um, policies and programs solutions based on a community engagement process. So there are certain individuals that are being directly compensated and elevated to that same level of understanding. There's a really important need to combine those experiences to come up with something that's actually as impactful as it could be. Yeah, that's great. Co-creation consultant. I love that. And it feels it's one of those things that feels so obvious as you're saying it, but it's also not something that's done uh, as often as it, it certainly should be. But um, I think it's great that these cities are are elevating those individuals and then we can kind of see how well that's working out um, for the, the rest of the cities out there. What about policymakers that might be listening to this and maybe they're further along. They don't. Uh, they didn't start with equity at the, uh, as a priority. Maybe they didn't build it in. Maybe they're implementing the policy. And um, is there still a way to incorporate it now, or or do they have to go back to the drawing board? What would you recommend? I think the key in situations like that is transparency. If you are going to approach an organization or individuals to try to incorporate 
an equity perspective, then you have to be very transparent about what your policy process has looked like up until that point. And there also has to be a recognition um, that it wasn't the best process and that it should have been improved. Um, I also think that if you're at that stage, you actually have to be willing to potentially make some changes um, and make some adjustments to the remainder of your policy process going forward if you're up midstream um, and like think really seriously about what the implementation oversight of that policy is going to look like and how um, it can involve um, the community and uh, and individuals who might actually end up being impacted by the policy. Um, also, this should hopefully result in changes to how policy development is done. Um, one of the one of the things you mentioned was like this seems like it's something that should be um, obvious to do, but in reality, policies are develop have been developed on particular timelines, and those timelines have typically been very tight. And so, when you're looking at how do I fit this into this Gantt chart, um, it doesn't results in the types of relationship building conversations um, and sort of back and forth and iteration and co-development with community, it usually results in a couple of public comment periods because that's what will fit. Um, and so there has to be recognition going forward of the actual amount of time needed in order to develop a policy that centers equity and uses equity in its process. Because um, that takes longer um, and it Admittedly, also can take more resources, but the results um, and the impact and the implementation partners that policymakers might see from taking those approaches is, is much greater. You also reminded me of a part of this where, you know, you just having a conversation and in, like engaging, quote unquote, engaging the community by having a conversation with individuals in the community and then going about your business and, okay, I checked that box. That's obviously not the point. So making sure to have an integrated process where there are um, e either co-creation consultants that are along with you for the entirety of the, the project or some way that you're engaging with the community at every step of the process from uh, pre-design to designing the policy to implementation and then to review of the policy. Um, and one thing I, I'm curious to get more of your thoughts on are the kind of developing metrics around equity and how to integrate that into policy to, to sort of see how you actually are doing at the end of the day. Yeah, so there's been a number of organizations that are working on equity metrics and particularly one thing that we found to be effective is reflecting those metrics um, via maps because that's a really mm -hmm. helpful way to make the story of the built environment clear to community members and it's also something that like policymakers and government are also familiar with. Um, so there's some organizations like GreenLink Analytics who are working very diligently on mapping some metrics. What we have found through some of our research in zero cities was there are a couple of metrics that um, seem to be salient across the country in the in the cities we were working in. And we were looking at things like energy burden and how that um, correlated with the urban heat island effect. Um, we also uh, looked at um, indicators like um, presence of of race and minority communities um, because of the history 
of redlining in this country that often is, is a proxy for where there are areas of disinvestment in the built environment and also where um, greater interventions might uh, need to be made. Um, we get, if, if listeners aren't familiar with redlining, I'm sure we can talk about it a little bit more. There's actually um, direct links to environment um, in the way that redlining was done. I know it's pretty common to know about the race elements, but they're actually direct environmental considerations as well in the way that underwriting was done. Um, and so the reason that all of these things together can often give a helpful proxy of where there is, has been a cycle of disinvestment and where um, policies um, could potentially be targeted in a given neighborhood. So hopefully that is a helpful start. And then I also plugged sort of another organization that has like a pretty extensive uh, list of metrics and also where their primary sources were for getting those metrics to. Yeah, that's excellent. And we'll link to all of that in the show notes, as well as obviously the report that we've been talking about. Um, and of course, uh, you know, like you said, we talked about actually getting to measuring metrics. Um, of course, start, starting with good intentions, setting good intentions is always good, um, but doesn't always lead to good outcomes. Do you have some examples of where policies ended up further burdening um, communities that had been previously disadvantaged or are currently being disadvantaged? I, I can talk about it. First, I'll, I'll give an example from the renewables context, and then I think it helps mm -hmm. give some context for the equity focused conversation that's now going on around electrification. Um, mm. So on the renewable side, there's been a series of conversations, particularly um, given the cost decline seen in the battery storage sector. So there's now a lot of battery backup going uh, in. And then there is also like a question that came up when the cost of lithium ion batteries that were going down is like, how many people are just going to like leave the grid entirely? Um, mm. And when you start doing the math, if, if a bunch of generally the people who were able to early do early adoption of solar and storage and also any anything that would actually be able to take them fully off grid were tended to be very concentrated in the upper income bracket. So what that does is that the fixed costs that are built into rate design are passed on to a low of smaller and smaller number of consumers. So you mm. often could end up with people who are lower middle class to low income absorbing more of the weight of the people who sort of have left the infrastructure behind. So that was a conversation that was starting to go on um, in sort of the renewables field when energy, the energy storage prices started dropping precipitously. So we can also think about this um, on the electrification side of the house too, um, because it's a similar dynamic um, that has uh, led a lot of the conversation around equity and electrification, um, because in this case, you're talking about um, removing load from the gas system because you're trying to get everyone to electrify. And that also has implications in the same way in terms of the fixed costs that are being passed on to the remaining gas consumer base. So that is why a lot of the individuals that are working on equity and electrification are very focused on what can we do um, to sort of turn this notion on its head. How do we um, target electrification in areas where it's most needed? How do we look at electrification and affordable housing? Um, all of that is sort of to uh, mitigate some of what we've seen um, in the solar sector and in the storage sector, which is still that it's kind of largely those installations are going into 
upper middle class homes and they're seeing the bit they're seeing the benefits and so the question with electrification is can we can we electrify and get those health uh, health benefits and the many other benefits of electrification um, into low to moderate income households and BIPOC households and not be having sort of the same conversation 10 years from now if we're really successful with heat pump deployment. So hopefully that's a helpful parallel. Yeah, that's helpful. And I think a lot of folks have been talking about the energy costs switching to electricity um, versus actually the energy costs of staying with gas if everybody else switches to electricity. So I think um, there's a lot of when we're talking about individual buildings, it's, you know, it's maybe not as much of a concern, but when we're talking about what the entire city needs to do as, from a policy perspective, we need to think about the ramifications of many, many buildings switching from one to the other or uh, what the cost structures are going to be. Um, what, uh, what are some um, ways that you see cities sort of dealing with the costs of uh, electrification at the affordable housing level? Very much depends where you are in the country. Um, mm-hmm. So, for for instance, I'm in New England. So there's actually still mm-hmm. quite a bit of oil heat left, and there's quite a bit of electric resistance heat left, just because our building stock is very old. Um, right. So there's naturally occurring afford- affordable housing and regulated affordable housing. So depending on how the affordable housing is regulated, it really like impacts how much control, direct control a city will have over over it. But in any case, a lot of the cities in the North, North in New England have really targeted what they really targeted where there would be cost savings by switching from these um, particular forms of heating. And so they've tried to do very targeted campaigns um, of of helping those. Prop, rental properties to upgrade um, for a better experience for their occupants and savings for the owner. So that's been an important first step. There is a big push to get electrification and support for heat pumps included into the low income program directly um, in the mass save program, for example, so that at least everyone has equal access to the incentives because uh at the commercial, the residential, and then the low to moderate income program. Um, so there are certainly movements like that to try to make, um, to try to target where there is a cost advantage and where there is an incentive advantage. It's just the situation is quite different across the country, just based on climate zone, what the electricity grid looks like now, what it will look like in the near future. Um, so it's it's hard to give a blanket answer, but those are that's some of the ways in which cities are trying to incorporate um, what we know, who is very energy burdened based on the types of technology they're using and trying to alleviate that using electrification. So what we like to ask our listeners at the end is if we have you back on the podcast in five years, what will we be talking about then? Or what do you hope we'll be talking about then? There's a lot of big ifs in the statements, but um, it looks like we're about to get, hopefully, a significant amount of funding from the federal government towards climate and environmental programs. And the federal government is also 
pretty invested through the Justice 40 initiative and actually ensuring that some of these communities that we're talking about that have had this cycle of disinvestment actually get resources directly related to climate, energy, and workforce development. Let's assume all that happens. Um, <laughs> so um, what I, where I hope to see, uh, see us in five years is that there'll be a lot more um, city and community-based organizations collaborating and actually implementing solutions. I would hope to see a pretty dramatic transformation in the affordable housing stock and also that directly reflected in federal and state standards around like what we expect from our affordable housing and how it incorporates um, health, um, equity, um, and resilience. Um, similarly, I also would hope that a lot of the support programs that are going into transforming existing buildings um, are taking a more holistic and whole building perspective um, so that uh, so that occupants are really benefiting from all of the different metrics that I just described. Um, so I would hope to see a lot more implementation and I would also hope to see a lot of the leading community-based organizations that are across the country and like usually very under-resourced actually at those tables and like helping drive what the outreach and implementation looks like um, because we'll just end up repeating the problems of the past if we're not involving new voices and uh, changing the way that we do our work. So that's that's my hope. That's my hope of where we'll be. We're about to get a hopefully, fingers crossed, crossing all my fingers, um, a big chunk of investment towards this particular topic that we haven't seen in a really long time. And that also means that there's a lot of opportunity for us to do a lot of transformation between now and five years from now. Yeah, that's great. That's an excellent point. And I think one of the conclusions of this study is around more funding is needed. Um, and so hopefully that will come and we'll see people moving from talking about equity in buildings to actually implementing solutions, like you said. Not that, but some people are obviously amidst implementing, but um, excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, of course. It was wonderful meeting you. And um, I've enjoyed listening to a couple of your podcasts myself. So this was really nice. Awesome. Well, thank you for uh, listening and thank you for coming on. While Catherine encouraged us all to take a look at the principles, the first two pages of the Buildings and Equity Framework, I really wanted to encourage everyone to take a deeper dive into the entire document. For me, it really connected that higher level principle to what does it look like day to day to implement these solutions? What challenges will you run up against and what do you need to consider along the way? From pre-design, uh, you know, considering the policy that you'd like to deliver, all the way through to seeing whether the policy had the kind of impact that you were looking for. If you want to get a link to that document or any of the other items that we mentioned in our podcast today, please check out our show notes at swinter.com slash podcasts. Buildings and Beyond is brought to you by Stephen Winter Associates. We believe our world is not as sustainable, healthy, safe, equitable, or inclusive as it needs to be. And we continually strive to develop and implement innovative solutions to improve the built environment. If you want to join us in our mission, please visit swinter.com slash careers. I, of course, want to give a big shout out to our production team, Dylan Martello, Alex Mirabile, Heather Breslin, and my co-host, Rob Aldridge. 
We also wanted to give a big shout out this week to Jade Alvarez. While she is focusing now on her graduate studies at Columbia University in sustainability management, she was a true asset to the entire Stephen Winter Associates team and of course this podcast. We wish her the best of luck as she continues her career in sustainability. We want to thank you all for listening and we will see you next time.